the Impact Nations podcast, episode 79, A New Humanity. How do we leave room for the Holy Spirit in our Sunday gatherings? Do we even have time for the corporate reading of Scripture? And how can we get better at loving one another, regardless of ethnicity or socioeconomic status? There's so much to investigate this week as we look back at chapter 2 and then progress into Ephesians chapter 3. Hello, everyone. Good to be back together again as we journey through Paul's wonderful letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at the the first half of chapter 3, but before we do that, I want to go back to the final verse of chapter 2, because when I was talking to you two weeks ago now, I missed something really important. Uh, in, In the New Revised Standard Version, which is the one that we've been using through this series, it seems like uh, chapter 2, verse 22 was not the best translation. Let me read that to you. In whom you also are built together spiritually uh, into a dwelling place for God. Most of the best translations specifically say that we are built in or by the Spirit. Now, if you were watching last week... Cherith Nordling reminded us that spiritual is actually not a term that Paul ever used. He always wrote about the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. So let me just give you a few examples from other translations. The New English Translation, the New American Standard, the New King James all say this, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Uh, In uh, the ESV, You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then one I really like is the NIV. It says, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So let's let's take uh, several minutes and and go back circle back over this cuz i think we need to i think we need to to spiral down into it a little more the holy spirit is specifically building us into the new temple or the dwelling place but not only is he the builder it's the reality of his presence among us as god's people that makes us into a new humanity, a term that we looked at in chapter 2, that makes us into the, the new community that Paul has been writing about. Now, let me quote from Gordon Fee's wonderful book, Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. By the way, Gordon Fee is Cherith Nordling's father, and he passed away last fall, but he was a, a brilliant writer and theologian. He said this, The place of his presence is holy. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The gathered church is the place of God's own personal presence by the spirit. This is what marks off God's people from all other people on the face of the earth. There is not a more important word in all the New Testament as to the nature of the local church than this one. The local church is God's temple in the community where it is placed, and it is so by the presence of the Spirit alone, by whom God has now revisited his people. Now, I've been thinking a lot over the last week, especially since we had that 
interaction with Cherith. And I've been thinking about the, the connection be, uh, that Paul creates between mystery, as we've said before, he writes about it seven times. We're going to get several of those today. Mystery, the Trinity, and being a people of the Holy Spirit. How, how are these all tied together? Back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul wrote this. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now there's a few things I really want you to to get from this going back and reviewing. First, Christ is our way into the life of the Trinity. Only in Christ can we see the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9, For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The mystery of the Incarnation, how John described it as the Word became flesh. The mystery of the Incarnation is the mystery of the Trinity being revealed. This is something really important. When the Trinity slides into the background in our teaching and our thinking, our understanding of the gospel shifts and I think gets smaller. The the understanding focuses now just on forgiveness. However, what Christ did on the cross was not simply to forgive us, it was to restore us to union and communion with the triune God, to become participants in his eternal activity. Let me just say this, too, that when when we make the issue it's all about forgiveness, it's easy to start thinking that we are saved by what he did on the cross. No, we are saved by Christ. You see, it's bigger. Of course it includes forgiveness, but it is bigger. It's it's this restoring us to, to the union that we will have for all eternity with God. So, how does this connect with the church being what Paul calls a new humanity of the Spirit? Paul challenges us to live in a whole new way. Because of the Spirit, we live with a new experience, a new power source, a new life source. And that life source is the Trinity. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune community is the source from which all creation derives its value. And why is that? Because creation is a reflection of the infinite value that the three persons of the Trinity find in each other. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit's life together is the divine joy of expressing that infinite value back and forth to each other, giving, receiving. From early days in the church, this was called the divine dance. The word, and I've taught it to you before, the word is perichoresis, and it means this activity of the Trinity. God's love for us is the expression and the overflow of the love that the three persons in the Trinity have for one another. God is love, both within himself and toward us. 
Now, here's another point I really want you to get. The only way we can love one another as a new humanity is to first receive the love of the triune God, the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then when we receive his love, we return it back to him. That's worship and adoration and to others. When God's love is received, shared back to him, and given to others, we are reflecting the very activity of the divine dance. True life in the Holy Spirit must come down to us and then go back up to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and go out to the people around us. If we are being built as a dwelling place in and by the Holy Spirit, as Paul wrote in verse 22, these three dimensions or or directions must be at the core of our corporate being. This is what life in his dwelling place is all about. And it's always been God's plan. We've talked before about the Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis 12, 1-3, that, that always God planned to come to a people, move through a people, and then go out to others. Now, the second main point I want to make here is that relationship began before time because of the divine dance. Therefore, Relationship is at the core of the cosmos and all of life as God created it. It is from all eternity that the Father has known and loved the Son and the Holy Spirit. In fact, given this understanding, it could almost be said, John 1.1, in the beginning was relationship. For all eternity, God was loving and giving life to and delighting in his son, and from before time the son was receiving and giving back love to the father, and the spirit was receiving and giving back love to both the father and the son. Here's another important point I want you to get. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not a reflection of God or the communicator or agent of God's love. He is not just an agent that that shares the love of the Father and the Son. He is the third person. He is God. Why am I emphasizing this? It's, I think, a really important point that, that some of us maybe have lost our way on a little bit. The Holy Spirit was moving over the waters, even as the earth was about to be created. The Holy Spirit was, for example, on Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit was parting the Red Sea. So here's the point. If the church functionally, not according to their statement of faith, but what they live out, if they considered the Holy Spirit as an it, or as the love that flows between the Father and the Son, then of course the church will minimize and tame the Holy Spirit's role, which sadly it has done. Third point I want to make. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. 
Greg Boyd wrote this, What was this joy? It was the joy of sharing the ecstatic love that God eternally is with you and me throughout all eternity. The cross was the price he was willing to pay to make this happen. And this speaks volumes about the worth he ascribes to you and me. Because the church is being built by and in the Holy Spirit, therefore the church reflects and draws life from the eternal activity of the Trinity. Jürgen Schulz wrote this, The three-in-one God is a fountain of blessing and joy and goodness that spills over and that gives and gives and gives. E.J. Fortman said this, If the blessed are to be endlessly and supremely happy, then they must share in the very life of the triune God, in the divine life that makes them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, endlessly and infinitely happy. If we are going to let Paul's letter do its work in us, we must come to the deep realization that the church, the very body of Christ here on earth, is not to be marked by religious piety, but by radical love that is the result of participating in the perfect eternal love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We receive live in, express, and give away from the eternal activity of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, we read Paul's declaration that we're now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now here in this last verse, verse 22, he's trying to open our eyes so that we see that the church, we learn to live more frequently and more deeply in that reality. In a practical way, We need to focus, we need to meditate, we need to contemplate, we need to express the activity of the Trinity marking our lives. We need to spend time just addressing our hearts and souls to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, and of of experiencing His joy within the triune God. The dwelling place of God in the Spirit that Paul just wrote about, is in the heavenly realm. And therefore, the church lives on the earth in that Holy Spirit reality. The activity of the Spirit is love. That is the essential mark of the authentic church and Christ, of the body of Christ. This is our highest purpose. This is our greatest privilege. And the only true and deep source of joy, this is, is true holiness. Not doing right, not avoiding wrong. Holiness means loving the Son as the Father and the Holy Spirit are eternally loving Him and living in this supernatural, heavenly realm love in all directions. That is what I've been thinking about from verse 22 this past week. We are marked by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, by the joy by the joy of the Spirit. Well, let's move on now to this week's teaching. We now come to the last of the three theological chapters. The main idea here is that God has revealed a new and definitive stage in his eternal plan. He's creating a people for himself consisting of both Jews and Gentiles that are united to Christ and therefore deeply joined to one another. 
Paul says this is a great mystery hidden from the ages until now. So now Paul's about to write in more depth about this mystery of one new humanity. That's just a great term. Some of your translations say one new man, but I I love that. The participants in this new community are those who have placed their faith in Christ and in Christ's faithfulness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They now have direct access to the Father. So here we go. The mystery revealed. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, am the prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul begins with a clear statement of how he sees himself. And then he immediately, right after this, he digresses and he doesn't even come back to his point uh, until verse 13. When he says, I, Paul, he uses that several times in his letters. It's a way of emphasizing of what he's about to say. It's like saying, listen up. He defines himself as a prisoner of or for Christ Jesus, not as a prisoner of Rome or of Caesar. He could easily have blamed the Romans or the Jews for his situation. Remember, from AD 57 to 59, Paul was held in custody in Jerusalem and then Caesarea. And then from uh, 60 to 62 or 3, he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, that in those days, that meant he was physically shackled to a guard, a soldier, 24-7. Imagine the frustration, the indignity of being chained to someone 24-7. But in spite of this, he sees himself in the center of Christ's will for him. Isn't that amazing? He never falls into self-pity. He never doubts, oh, this is what you're doing, Lord. For Paul, Jews and Romans' involvement in his imprisonment was incidental. It wasn't very important. I want you to just think about this fact. The only reason that Paul had been in prison for all these years was because he had declared that Gentiles had the same access to God that Jews did. If he'd been content to just be a a Jewish Christian with a mission to Jews, he would have had no trouble. Or if he'd been willing to keep the Gentiles, yeah, you're, you're in the church, but you're on a lower level than the Jews. Again, he would have had no trouble. But he says, for this reason... And what is the reason? It's because the cost of being an apostle who lays a foundation. We see he is addressing specifically the Gentiles at this point. Isn't that interesting? That just really hit me last week. If he hadn't insisted that this new humanity, the church, was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, he never would have been in trouble. And yet, he isn't embittered by this. He isn't saying, what's gone wrong? He recognizes he's right in the center of the will of God. Remarkable. Well, let's move on. Verses 2 to 4. For surely you've already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote about in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. So, as I said, he makes this major digression. He starts a sentence, and then he breaks it off, and he goes for 12 verses. 
and then he moves directly into writing about the unique call of God on his life. Now, in this first section, verses 2 to 6, Paul describes the close link between his commission from God and the mystery that God has revealed to him. The, the word commission, it's, it, in the Greek, it's, it's kind of difficult to translate. It's, it, it, its primary meaning in Paul's time was the management of a household. So really what's going on here, Paul has, or God has given Paul the responsibility of administrating the part of his plan for the cosmos that involves the inclusion of the Gentiles within the household of believers. God's commission to Paul is a demonstration of his limitless grace. Because who did he give this commission to? The very one who persecuted his beloved bride. Now, another thing I want you to notice here, grace was given to Paul for a purpose. It wasn't just there, there. The grace, the empowering presence of the Spirit, the favor of God, that he's always with him, it was given for a purpose because grace, just like revelation, always comes with responsibility. It's not passive. Jesus said this to the 12 in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. The second phrase we see here is, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, there's several possibilities about when and how this revelation of the mystery came to Paul. And we can't know for sure. But the, the main possibilities are on the road to Damascus. Um, people would have known very much about that. Or the second one, he writes about uh, near the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Very interesting. It's always fascinated me that he didn't go on and on about what he saw or, or made a big deal. I've had this. He didn't write a book about it. He didn't go on a lecture circuit about it. He said, I know a man who 14 years ago, and, and, and that's all he would say. The third possibility is, did, did this encounter happen where he got this revelation of the mystery? Did it happen at another time that he never referred to? If he is referring to the Damascus Road experience, it would have been common knowledge among the church. So he would only have to describe that in a few words. They'd know what he was talking about. We're back to the word mystery. Such a key, key word in, in Ephesians, as we've looked at a couple of times. Ephesians, more than any other letter of Paul, speaks of mystery. In fact, we're going to look at it four times in four verses in chapter 3. The Greek word, mysterion, um, for the early church, just to review, mystery refers to God's revelation to us of something that we could not possibly know unless he'd made it known. This is what we mean by revelation. That's, that's why he said to Peter in, in Mark, uh, Matthew 16, 16, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That's revelation, Peter. Uh, another key, if you're interested more in, in looking into what, what is meant by mystery, go to the book of Daniel. It's a key word there. 
And uh, Daniel 2.28 says, It is God who reveals mysteries and has made known what will take place in the last days. Though Paul does all that he can to help the Ephesians to understand the mystery of Christ, that's what this letter is about, it's actually the Holy Spirit who reveals it upon their hearts. As I was reading this, I, I thought back all the way to 1982. Wow, more than 40 years. There was a night that I was sitting uh, with a, a really well-known Bible teacher, and there was a group of about 60 or 70, and he was talking about the kingdom of God, and then we finished, and people went for coffee, and suddenly... Uh, it's like suddenly what I couldn't see, I could see in a moment from one second to the next. I could see, by the way, I sat in that chair and I just cried and cried. But it, it was in a moment I saw the kingdom and it changed the entire way that I saw the gospel of Christ and it has been one of the major influences in my teaching for 40 years. It's the same thing. It was a Holy Spirit revelation and that is how mystery comes to us. Now, unlike the cultic religions that surrounded the Ephesians, which we've talked about before, the mystery of Christ was not to be kept as a secret. Instead, it was for all people. In fact, the church was God's vehicle to reveal it to the entire cosmos, both visible and invisible. And we'll see a little more of that later. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.7, but we speak God's wisdom a hidden mystery, which God decreed or predestined before the ages for our glory, and which none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So mystery here is called wisdom of God. It is the crucified Christ, which is the culmination of the mystery. And this passage shows us that God's plan was hidden for a reason. It was hidden from the powers and principalities and Satan himself and only revealed in Christ's crucifixion, descent into Hades, and resurrection. And this was always God's eternal plan. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of Christ of God's mystery. That is, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge. Because Christ is the mystery, the true and final revelation of the one true God, therefore the Ephesians can turn away from any remaining rituals because it's been their upbringing and part of their culture, they can turn away from all their other rituals of the, of the quote, gods they've worshipped all their lives. Now, the first time we really looked at mystery was in chapter 1. And uh, he, Paul was talking about uh, the union of heaven and earth in Christ. Uh, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is like the first step of this progressive explanation of mystery. So that's where it begins with the union of heaven and earth. But now, this mysterious 
union of Jews and Gentiles. And this is the primary focus of chapter 2 and 3. And when we get to chapter 5, we'll see the, the, the final stage of, of this mystery, which is the union of Christ and his universal church, his bride. The last thing I want you to notice from these few verses. He said this, verse 4, As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. Now, I told you before, Paul's letter would have been read aloud when the church gathered. And uh, in fact, historical theologians tend to think it would have been read at the time of the Eucharist, of the, of the sharing of the body and blood of Christ. But I want to make a simple point. It's almost an appeal. He says, as you read what I've written, the public reading of Scripture was a foundational practice when the church gathered. And in some of our traditions, we have liturgical traditions. Among us, we've got folks, of course, who are Lutherans and Anglicans and Catholics and Orthodox. But among evangelicals, there's very little public reading of Scripture. There may be a verse or two in the midst of a sermon, but the public reading of Scripture was, is when a passage is read out. Typically, for example, in liturgical churches, they go through what's called the lectionary so that every three years they go through and there's Old Testament, New Testament, and Gospel. So I, I just appeal to everybody. It was always from the beginning the foundational practice of the church, the public reading of Scripture. Well, let's move on. Verses 5 and 6, which is as far as we're going today. This mystery has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the first thing is, this revelation was revealed to his apostles and prophets. And we looked at this earlier when we looked at at. Uh, 220, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But um, I said apostles were sent ones. They were often builders. Uh, prophets are vital. Uh, along with the apostles, the prophets are vital for the sound foundation of the church. And remember we said Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone brings the building stability and integrity. That's why we must preach Christ and him crucified all the time. Not only that, as those who receive their revelation by the work of the Spirit, apostles and prophets lay out the, the perimeters of the church. And he, he addresses them as, uh, as holy. And that's one of Paul's favorite words to describe believers. It's on the basis of what Christ has done for them, how he sanctified them and is sanctifying them as a new people set apart for God. By the way, he uses that word holy 15 times in, in this short letter. Secondly, central to the mystery of Christ is the revelation that God has now created one hu new humanity through the power of reconciliation released at the cross. Therefore, Gentiles now share equally as fellow citizens in the church. They're not second class. We talked about this two weeks ago. Paul emphasizes this by repeating in verse 6, 
three key prepositions that we don't see directly in English, but but in the Greek, he he joins a um, he he joins a prefix, uh, sin, s y n, which means to be joined or to be with, and he attaches that to the word for heirs, body, and sharers. Um, Every time there are, there are a prefix attached at the front. So what's going on? Because it's very interesting. In fact, one of them, where he puts the prefix for body, it's the only place we see it anywhere in Greek language in all literature. So it's like he made up a word. He is accentuating that God has eliminated all distinctions um, in bringing salvation to all people bring them into the universal church. They will now be identified by their togetherness in a multi-ethnic, multicultural group marked by love, empowered by the Spirit. Together, Jewish and Gentile believers all share the same promise in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.14, Paul has addressed this. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so they might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Remember, I told you before, from the beginning, God's plan was for the promise of blessing to go out to all the ethnos, all the people groups of the world. He talks about the Holy Spirit of promise. I think he's really going back to chapter 1, verse 13. The Holy Spirit's the pledge of our inheritance. This means that the mark, the evidence that God has created a new humanity is the presence, power, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wrote to uh, the Corinthians One of my favorite passages, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The great preacher did did not come with his, his rhetorical skills, to persuade and to be show himself wise, but with demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And God had already demonstrated this promise. Remember Peter, who, who stayed just in the Jewish world, and then in Acts 10, he's up on the roof, he has a vision, he sees the animals come down in the sheet, And the Lord tells him, go, you're going to have three people come. And they go to Cornelius. And he preaches the gospel in a Gentile's house. Any Torah-obeying Jew would have never been in a Gentile house in their life. We almost can't imagine the division between Jew and Gentile. But in obedience to the Holy Spirit, he goes in, I'm sure with some uncertainty, and the Spirit comes on him and anoints him and Acts 10, 44, 45. While Peter was still speaking to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. I believe we must constantly 
be brought back as a church to this place of fellowship in and with the Spirit. That's why I spent the first portion of today going back to verse 22. We must take hold of this. I know this as a pastor. If we don't take hold of this, it it slips away. And the Holy Spirit can become tame and small and theoretical. And well, he's the one who, who gives us inspiration when we read the scriptures. Well, yes, he's the one who helps us. Yes, but he's also the one who fell on, Pen- on the day of Pentecost, who fell again in chapter 4, who fell in chapter 19 again and again and again. The Holy Spirit. We are a people of the Spirit. That's why Paul's final words to the church in Corinth were that famous grace. Some of your church traditions, you would finish your service with this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, let's wrap this up. Today, we saw two terms kept coming up, new humanity and mystery. And mystery is going to continue on for the next lesson too. Paul's explanation of mystery is progressive. It's from the union of heaven and earth in chapter 1, and now Paul has created, uh, God has created a whole new humanity, a whole new entity, a whole new way of life, new way of life made up of Jews and Gentiles. Folks, I don't think in a 21st century we will ever fully understand just how shocking this would have been to the Jews and, for that matter, to the Gentiles. I think we have a real responsibility in the 21st century in the West to see the church as a new humanity, one that is without any racial, any socioeconomic, any generational divides. It's a new humanity. That surely is what Paul is shouting to us. And we have a responsibility to see it that way. Dr. King famously said in the 60s that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We must proactively, as I've said before, live out a, a, a whole new humanity. We need to proactively, each of us, live out uh, our participation in this wonderful fellowship of the Spirit without any racial or socioeconomic, or other divides. So, I've been, of course, thinking a lot about what it means to be built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. So, I'm finishing where I started. The key is by or of the Spirit. I spent a lot of time on this issue and and on the life of the Trinity because we see so little of this in our churches. Yet God has created a hunger in his creation for his spirit. As I teach this today, and and this is recorded a few weeks before you'll see it, but as I teach it, uh, a move of God in uh, a seminary in a college in Kentucky, Asbury, broke out and they just started to worship. There was no plan. It just happened in chapel, and it never stopped, and it went for two weeks, 24-7, and it, and it got up to 50,000 people, and it became just logistically, they didn't know what to do. So they, they said, well, we're going we're gonna to stop meeting, 
and it immediately spread to other campuses. And as I share this with you now, I wonder what will be the case when you hear this, but it's spreading. Why is that so important? Because God puts a hunger in people for his spirit. The testimony of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit, both in his presence and his power, is the mark of this new humanity, this completely new kind of community that the triune God has created. Well, God bless you, and uh, we'll meet. uh, If you stick around in a minute or so, Tim and I will begin to unpack some of this. Bye-bye. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, I am recently back from Pakistan, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about something I observed there before we jump into some questions Great. on Ephesians 3 today. Um, I, uh, I've been telling folks we, we saw a lot of, lot of people healed and saved during our time there. Uh, one of our board members, Craig, and I were there uh, touring the nation, saw a lot of the country. I was in three of the international airports within a couple of days of each other, really. Uh, put a lot of kilometers in the car. Um, but as we stopped and, and, and prayed for folks and just asked that question, may I pray for you or, or what do you need Jesus to do for you today, uh, again and again... The answer was, uh, I, I have a sore stomach or I have tummy trouble, I have a headache, I have joint pain. And, you know, we saw Jesus heal uh, again and again. It's so funny, actually, when uh, you see this all over the world. When, when folks get healed, uh, very often they don't re- react very demonstrably because you told them that they would get healed and then they did. And so it's like, okay, yeah, that worked pretty good. And then they walk away and it's next. Uh, so that always makes me laugh. But uh, again and again, folks got healed. But here's the thing. I know that actually they were going home to some trouble that was causing that. And yes. so they're going to be facing that same difficulty again a, a week or two later. Uh, and that difficulty is their water source. Um Everywhere we went, people were clearly struggling from contaminated water. Uh, actually, while I was in Pakistan, uh, our team here was putting together that rescue effort in Malawi. I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners yeah. uh, who helped us get the job done in Malawi. We provided, I don't know, a, a lot of meals, well over 100,000 meals. Uh, got 200 water filters over there in a hurry. Um, Which thank in you an to, emergency oh, will be huge. thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands. Yeah, because folks gather in these uh, in these um, uh, evacuation centers, if you will, you know, in schools and yeah. things like that, where suddenly they've got to seek shelter because their homes have been destroyed or uh, are not, they're underwater at the moment or whatever. Um, and the water table after the storms gets very damaged. Like it, it's contaminated very quickly and you see outbreaks of cholera, which leads to death. So uh, bad stuff. Uh, thank you to Joshua Smith, one of our amazing Impact Nations family members who just said yes, hopped on a plane and brought 200 filters over to Malawi yeah. to get that done. But here's the thing. All of that only happens because people give to the clean water efforts, the clean water fund at Impact Nations. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can just head to impactnations.com slash water. Uh, you can give a filter for $75. You can give a filter to a family that's going to provide effectively a lifetime supply of clean water. Uh, we got to demonstrate a couple of them in uh, Pakistan. And 
just the reaction of people when they recognize how small it is. And at first they're like, well, that can't work. It's too small sort of a thing. And it's too simple. And then you demonstrate and they're blown away. You know, the water comes out, goes in dirty, comes out clean. Uh, and sometimes the water source even looks clean, but it's contaminated yeah. as we know with invisible bacteria. So, uh, it is a lifesaver. It's a life changer. Uh, we know that when people get access to clean water, their health immediately improves, which means their work attendance or school attendance improves, which means their economic status is improving. Um, and they're not having to either buy water or buy charcoal to boil indeed. water. And for those who do have access to medicine, they're not having to spend money on medicine because of their tummy trouble. So uh, it really is a, a, an amazing way to bring transformation to a family very, very quickly. Um, I got, uh, got to demonstrate the filter a few times at my house uh, this year because Bethany and I were doing a fundraiser for our journey to the Philippines. And one of the big things we're doing in the Philippines is, is clean water distribution. So we got to demonstrate how the filter works. And <laughs> we actually set up a, a clear bucket <coughs> in the living room. Uh, and Toby, my son, he's 12, he went out to the garden and scooped up a bunch of nasty dirt from like the compost pile or whatever and just dumped it in this bucket and everybody, you know, ah, and then we filtered that water and I drank right out of the cup and it's, it's always a great demonstration. But uh, the fact is that filter will work on just about any source of, I say fresh water, what I mean is not salt yeah, water. <laughs> they're remarkable. Uh, they're they? amazing. So, uh, but we need your help to distribute those. Uh, so if you'd like to head to impactnations.com slash water, uh, you can get involved today by just simply purchasing a water filter for a family and you will be changing their future i promise you so yeah we have a particular need right now with yeah. water i mean there's always needs but <clears throat> excuse me um can i just point out something yeah we provide a, a, a clean water source for a family essentially forever yeah but they almost always share those yeah. with, so there may be three, sometimes even four families. Mm -hmm. So you could be getting 25 people yeah. who go from being sick to not being sick. Yeah. Um, and, and we are really confronted right now. And frankly, with climate change, it's just increasing and increasing. Yeah. So we're, we're confronted in the Philippines. Pakistan had such a massive flood yeah. that something like 40% of the country was underwater. It was bonkers. And, um, and then, of course, what's going on in Malawi. So the, the need is, it's always there, but it seems to be very profound for us yeah. right now. Yeah. And it's such a great, you know, that we've given them to you guys over the years as Christmas gifts, yeah. you know, um, it, it's, it's such a fantastic solution. We've been using this particular filter since 2012. I think close to 600,000 people have got permanent water. Yeah. So it changes everything. Changes everything. So, uh, check it out, impactnations.com slash water, uh, and, uh, stay tuned because in the next little while we'll be planning, uh, some efforts in Pakistan as well to get some clean water there to some of those folks who, um, are no doubt suffering yet again. So, uh, okay. You, you finished up today talking about this, this new humanity and how there is no, there's no race or creed. It, it is, mm -hmm. uh, there's no dividing lines in this new humanity and, you know, as as you were saying that, I thought to myself, you know, I'm willing to bet that none of our listeners, myself included, would uh, out ourselves as uh, racist or prejudiced in any way. Mm -hmm. And yet, clearly, much of it still exists even in the church. And uh, you had that great quote from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King about it's the most segre segregated hour in America uh, is in the church. What are... 
What are we to do? What are, what are some marks of prejudice? How do we search our own hearts as individuals and as leaders in the church uh, to ensure that we're fighting against that tendency? Yeah, that's very good. Because it isn't, <clears throat> you know, we, we have trouble recognizing stuff in our own heart. Yeah. We really do. But, if, but we can recognize our priorities, we can recognize who we spend time with, or do we ever spend time outside of our comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Do we ever uh, intentionally reach out and connect with someone from a different ethnic or socioeconomic yeah. background? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's a good way to, to really uh, – a barometer – of where our lives are really at. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm going to take that one step further because <clears throat> the most cringeworthy response uh, you hear when uh, somebody from a majority ethnicity, and, and in North America that would be mostly uh, whites. Uh, Until is, about 20, 35, Indeed, yeah. But you'll hear, oh, <coughs> I, well, I, you know, some of my best friends are black or, or Hispanic or whatever. And it's, um, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that folks from those minority groups are like, oh, don't say that. Um, because it almost makes it sound like it's a free pass. Like, oh, well, I've befriended somebody from uh, a minority ethnicity, and so I'm job, job done, mission accomplished. Yep. As opposed to, like, well, that's the beginning. But <clears throat> I would challenge you, I mean, first off, if you haven't taken that step, please take that step. But secondly, if you have taken that step, don't rest on your laurels. Don't say, okay, well, I've, I've done it, so I'm good now. Begin to dialogue with your friends who are from a minority ethnicity or, or even socioeconomic group, like you said, a different socioeconomic um, group. Begin asking them, hey, how, what are some behaviors that, that damage your, your heart? What, how is it that we, the church, can mm. do better? Like start asking some honest questions and have some really hard conversations. Be willing to hear some pretty hard answers, I think. Uh, but we – like – Take the dialogue to the next level. Don't just check off, yeah, okay, I, I did step one, I'm good. Um, really, I would say do the hard work of asking some of the difficult questions and get the conversation started. And then pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide that conversation and give you a soft heart and ears to hear what's being said. Yeah, that's good. Um, also, I, I, you know, I, Paul is so insistent on what in Ephesians he calls a new humanity. Yeah. He uses many metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um but he is so insistent that there is neither Greek nor Jew nor male nor female, mm-hmm. Republican or Democrat. <laughs> um, he insists on it again and again through his letters. And and so I think when we are moving, and, and maybe we'll talk in a minute more about this life in the spirit because that's was such an emphasis in this mm-hmm. week's teaching. But when we're moving in that, one of the markers, one of the fruit of that is uh, our community uh, becomes much more multi-ethnic, multi-economic, yeah. or in fact, that becomes more and more invisible. Yeah, indeed. Um, all right, let's let's talk about the reading of scripture. Uh, in I guess I, was, I had written down the public reading of scripture, and I'm not, I can't remember how you phrased it, but. Uh, it seems to me that the evangelical church is generally speaking, the majority of congregations have 
for the most part, done away with the reading of Scripture during their Sunday morning gathering. Um, whereas this is still very much a part of more uh, mainline or, or Catholic services, things like that. Why do you think that much of the charismatic and evangelical movement has done away with r- the corporate reading of Scripture? Uh. Well, I think they've done away with a few things, and that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, right away I, I hear some of my evangelical charismatic friends saying, but wait a minute, the pastor preaches out of a out of a passage every week. That's not the same as public reading of Scripture because, let's face it, most of the time there's an outline and they put verses in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some go through the Bible verse by verse, but public reading of Scripture goes back to the very beginning. It was always part of it. And and I believe that this on Sunday I was I was in two different churches I was in a, a liturgical church and I was in a charismatic church. In the liturgical church, we read together, um, you know, a, a lengthy gospel passage and prayed in response to it, and a New Testament passage, etc. In the other, we didn't. Mm-hmm. I think some of it is. <sighs> And this is a little bit hard medicine, but I think that the evangelical church in North America was so influenced by the church growth movement mm. when I was pastoring, mm-hmm. um, which had a its first cousin was seeker sensitive. Yeah, and so um, we we want to keep the service short enough, and we. We don't integrate the scripture. And here's the other irony. Uh, If I had a dollar for every pastor over the years who said to me, (laughs) I don't know why our people just don't read their Bible or they just don't pray. Well, that's because we don't model it every week Mm. by praying together. That was part of my experience this weekend, twice, Mm. you know, praying together corporately, uh, response prayers, um, and reading scripture. Go, wow, wow, wow. And uh, so it's ironic that that's such a common complaint yeah. among pastors and leaders. Though <laughs> they don't pray and they don't read their Bible, right? Hmm. Um, you you mentioned the length of the service, but <clears throat> what's interesting? And and by the way, I would encourage our listeners if you didn't hear our episode talking about liturgy yeah. uh, from about ten weeks ago or so, we had a, it wasn't part of the uh, season seven. It was just before we started season seven on Ephesians. But there's a uh, what we colloquially call a, a zero dash episode, a bonus episode that we did with Brad about ten weeks ago that I would encourage you to find uh, because we talk at length about liturgical services and and stuff. But what's interesting to me is that. Although those services are so jam-packed with corporate prayer and reading of scripture and, and even a homily and stuff, they still actually manage to wrap up in 70 minutes or so often, don't they? Yes, it's very yeah. true. It's very <laughs> true. It's one of the things that instead of a 40-minute sermon, mm. uh, there's a 10 or 15-minute, and you know, I've teased you many times, <laughs> yeah. Billy Graham, one of the great evangelical preachers, said, if you ha- can't say it in under 20 minutes, you don't have anything to say. Indeed. <laughs> and um, and that's a big one. And the other is the announcements. Oh, my word. And uh, and it, because we're promoting, right. we're promoting, we're promoting. And, you yeah. know, in my day, we had bulletins and uh, we didn't have the you couldn't put it online. Well, now you can put it online. You can run it before the service. Yeah. Uh, if you want, you can give them a bulletin. So it's like the sermon and the announcements, which is 
largely market, not largely, but some of its marketing, mm-hmm. that has become dominant. And what have we lost? We've we've lost weekly communion. We've lost the scripture reading. We've lost reading of the creeds. We've lost those things, and we've held on to. We are so influenced by our culture, our Madison yeah. Avenue culture. Yeah. Ooh, Madison Avenue culture. He. Um, you quoted First Corinthians two, four, and five, where mm. Paul <clears throat> is talking about it. Like, hey, I didn't preach with <laughs> with wise words, with fancy fancy words, or anything like that. I, I came with a simple message. Uh, but then you also said, like, hey, much of this letter to the Ephesians is about the mystery of Christ and how the culmination of that mystery at the cross. And <laughs> mystery is hard because it's hard to communicate. It's hard to. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just hard to break down in a nice, clear. I think of oftentimes we've talked here about the um, the danger of a simpler gospel in terms of breaking it down to the four spiritual laws or a nice, clear PSA, public substitu- yeah. substitutionary atonement uh, deal. Mystery is mushy at times. Like it's like I don't know how to communicate mystery, and I'm left feeling intimidated in terms of sharing my faith. How do we how do we preach mystery? <laughs> I purposed to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, mm-hmm. right? And the verse that you just said, um, verse 4 and 5, I didn't come with a package. Yep. <laughs> but I came with demonstration of the spirit and of its power. Mm. And <clears throat> as you know, uh, as we've planted a lot of churches when I was closer to your age, um, I always, even the days I didn't have much faith or almost didn't feel like it, you know, yeah. felt intimidated because pastors get days where they feel intimidated. <laughs> but I committed always to invite the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and uh, and invite people to come and receive. And so always, every week, there was people getting healed and people not getting healed. Yeah. And there was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? The churches grew and grew. When there was an outpouring of the Spirit, as you know, we had different times where within a day or two, uh, hundreds more people would come. And I'm not exaggerating. Because there's this great hunger. I I referred to Asbury when I was teaching today. Uh, Nobody planned that, but the Holy Spirit was poured out. And suddenly, because we are we are made for the spirit. Yeah. We're not made for all our great plans and all our stuff. I don't mind planning and so forth, but that's not it. We are a people of the spirit. I talked about that at the beginning of this session, and I've talked about it before. I, I learned that from Gordon Fee 30 years ago. Sure. Primarily, we are a people of the spirit. So my question is, why do we make so little room for the Holy Spirit as yeah. we gather. Yeah. We have to have our organization. We have to time it. We have to... Oh, uh, it's, it's absolutely antithetical yeah. to making room for the Spirit. At the same time, I believe that there's order. I mean, Paul talked about that in the Corinthian church. Sure. You know, there's things in order. But there's always room for the Spirit. You can tell I'm pretty stirred Indeed. up about this. How do we do it? I mean, you, you you started your teaching today talking about being a people of the Spirit, and talking. You you mentioned specifically we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is 
is God. The Holy Spirit yeah. is a, is a, a member of the, <coughs> he's tr- not of a the Trinity. He's, of God. he's a man. He's yep. a, he's a person, so to yep. speak, uh, um, and not some yeah idea. He's not the the expression of God's love or anything like right. that. He he is God. So how do we do it? How do we how do we begin to live out that reality? Especially, I think, particularly in our our public gatherings. Yes, in, in our corporate in life, our corporate together. life together. Absolutely, yeah. we we step out in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Right. Mm-hmm. Hebrews eleven six, we step out in faith again and again. We make room and invite the Holy Spirit. I know that when I invite Him, He comes. I know that in my own personal time. I know that when I've got sitting with friends in the living room, and I know that when I'm leading. I was in uh, Nepal, I think, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I had a group of pastors, and I was teaching, and it was going, you know, it's fine, but I made sure a couple of times I said, now we're just going to wait on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to invite him to come, and he did, Mm -hmm. and people were just impacted by the Spirit of God, Mm -hmm. but that was me saying, okay, we're going to invite Holy Spirit right now. Yeah. And so it's a very tangible expression, and it's really threatening to pastors because you can't, you can't order it. Sure. You know that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote, Aslan is not a tame lion. Indeed. And uh, we like tame lions, right? Yeah. But um, it is what we're made for, and I believe it's what is going to, to change. It's one of the things that's going to change this, this drain that has gone on in the Western church of mm. people um and and because we're made for the spirit we're made for it's very interesting isn't it that the <clears throat> the image we have in acts 2 pentecost is fire flames mm-hmm. it's you know your mother was in a conference one time and people phoned the fire department because they saw oh, flames i don't think i've heard that before they, yeah in in edmonton they saw wow. flames coming up yeah. well what happened people just come what's happening yeah. what's happening and they get impacted by the Lord. Yeah. So counterintuitive because we, uh, you talked about packaging earlier, like our temptation is to package it to be attractive to visitors. And yet the thing that is most attractive to anybody, because we were made for spirit, we were made to be in communion with the triune God. Uh, the thing that's most attractive is just when the spirit of God falls and uh, all heaven breaks loose. Like it, it, we lose control as, as, as leaders of a service, we don't, we're no longer it's unpredictable. We don't know yeah. what's going to happen. And that's way more threatening for us as pastors. Yeah. And then you've also got to shepherd it because mm-hmm. because <laughs> you I probably did a lot you, of that in the mid nineties. <laughs> you you've got it that 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 when the spirit begins to move, things get stirred up, but also people's flesh, yeah. you know, and it, they're not bad, but they just come out of their neediness or whatever. Yeah. And you've got to gently shepherd without shutting people down, but mm-hmm. but help people to recognize the genuine. Yeah. Hmm, that's good. Well, I think I'll leave it there for this week, but thank you so much. We're, we're going to be jumping into the rest of Ephesians 3. We're going to make it all the way to the end of Ephesians 3 next week, yeah? Uh, yes, I believe that right. we are. Awesome. Uh, folks, I've really enjoyed this uh, series on Ephesians. I know that you are too. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to write us at podcast at impactnations.com, always love to hear from our listeners. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Uh, you can find us uh, on YouTube every Thursday, uh, or you can just head straight to our website, impactnations.com slash podcast. Uh, we've got the entire catalog of all of our seven seasons of, uh, of material there. It's all cataloged for you. You can get the audio or the video right there on that page. Uh, or um, 
what I do uh, for podcasts is I subscribe on my favorite app, podcast app, uh, and then it's just delivered every single day. So if you just look for Impact Nation's podcast on your podcast app, you will find it, subscribe, and then you'll get it every single day. On YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe and hit that bell so you can get notifications. We've got great videos coming out. I've seen, you haven't seen them yet, but I got three videos that Isaiah sent me just yesterday that are, wow, uh, just powerful stories of restoration uh, that we can't wait to show. But you won't see those uh, right away unless you go to YouTube, find Impact Nations, hit subscribe, hit the bell so you get notified on your device. Uh, all right, I'm done with the sales pitch uh, for this Madison Avenue culture. Uh, so I'll wrap it up for this week, but we will see you again next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.